This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. A new warship, our first stealth destroyer, is in some ways the symbol of our military's future. But for some critics, the fact that it went so far over budget makes the ship the symbol of something very different, government excess. Of course, its unique design is one big reason behind the huge price tag, as you'll see for yourself when national security correspondent David Martin takes us aboard. The Navy has never built anything like it. The USS Zumwalt, filled with new technology and designed for stealth. So when people look at it funny, what do you say to them? First, I say, welcome to the newest, most advanced warship that the Navy is bringing to the fleet. Underway on the Navy's newest warship, ahead on Sunday morning, a ship like no other. Our Sunday profile this morning, Dennis Quaid, 
a Hollywood star with a long list of credits, and a new movie that's in the spotlight for all the wrong reasons. Tracy Smith will tell us all about it. Well, do you boys know what makes this bird go up? Funding. From a hotshot pilot <laughs> to a longshot pitcher, it seems the only thing Dennis Quaid can't do is quit. Acting and golf. Both of them you can do until you die. And that is your plan? That's, yeah, that's kind of my plan. Hello, Austin! Dennis Quaid, his life, his music, and his controversial new movie, later on Sunday morning. An oasis awaits us this Sunday morning, a spot filled with glitz and celebrity cachet. Margaret Brennan will be our guide. This desert oasis, 100 miles from L.A., is known for more than just palm trees and golf courses. It's a mecca of modern design. We got this body of work that's now world-famous collection of architecture from the mid-century here in Palm Springs. From the banks to the churches to Frank Sinatra's former home. The architectural cool of Palm Springs ahead on Sunday morning. When the Oscar night call goes out for the envelope, please, the cast and crew of one Best Picture nominee in particular will be holding their breath. This morning, Nancy Giles tells us the real-life story behind the film. There's a good chance... It's not what I expected. ...that you've heard about a movie called Moonlight. What did you expect? But haven't seen it. Do you think we will go and see this movie? We're not even asking you to like it. But with Mahershala Ali's Oscar nod, along with seven others, Moonlight is one of the season's most talked-about films. We're just trying to tell tell someone's truth. Hey, man, I got you. Later on Sunday morning, the little movie that's making a big splash. There you go. Serena Altshul takes us skiing with the sports-leading map maker. Yes, maps can be art, too. David Pogue watches researchers trying to build a better battery. We'll join so many others in saying our goodbyes to Mary Tyler Moore. And more. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. 73 years ago today, the famous World War II battleship Missouri was christened here in New York. It was state-of-the-art back then, but a far cry from a brand-new and somewhat more controversial addition to the nation's fleet. We call our Sunday morning cover story Anchors Away. It's reported by David Martin. If Batman had a warship, one admiral said, it would look like the USS Sumwalt. Welcome to the newest, most advanced warship that the Navy is bringing to the fleet. We rode with Captain James Kirk. No relation to Star Trek's Captain Kirk, although plenty of people have noted the coincidence, from Norfolk, Virginia up to Baltimore, where the Zumwalt, with its one-of-a-kind look, was officially commissioned as a destroyer in the United States Navy. So Zumwalt looks radically different. It's part of the design of the ship to be stealthy, a sleek exterior without a lot of metal sticking up in different places, a smooth surface. But what will President Trump think when he finds out the Zumwalt cost an astronomical $4 billion? Ray Mabus, who served as President Obama's Secretary of the Navy, 
admits the Navy tried to cram in too much new technology in too little time. We were designing while we built them. That's just not a smart way to build a ship. Mabus got that black eye not in a bureaucratic battle, but from eye surgery. He spoke with us on his last full day in office. The original concept was to have this very advanced destroyer that was primarily in a land attack role. So supporting ground troops, taking out enemy positions inland, having hyper-precise weapons that could reach a long way inland, and to do it with the most advanced technology that, that we had. Those innocuous-looking boxes house gun barrels capable of firing a rocket-assisted shell more than 60 miles with pinpoint accuracy. So if there's an enemy of the United States within the range of the ship, if we're ordered to, that person has about two to three minutes before they will no longer be an enemy of the United States. But like the ship, its ammunition turned out to be ruinously expensive. $800,000 per shell. So the Navy is looking for a cheaper round, one that would have a significantly shorter range. Today, it's still a little bit unclear exactly what round is going on that ship, what, um, what that gun system will be able to do. There are only 147 crew members aboard the highly automated Zumwalt, about half what a traditional destroyer carries. I see over there, instead of lookouts, you now have video monitors. That's right, where we typically would have lookouts uh, 24-7 uh, on the port side, the starboard side, and aft. On this ship, we have camera systems so that we don't have to have sailors do it. We have cameras do it for us. Still, says Chief Petty Officer David Aiken, there is more than enough work to do. The systems on board the ship are uh, brand new to the Navy, most of them. We have to learn them from scratch for the most part. So is this a sweet duty assignment? It's sweet, but you got to work for it. You're trying to catch up and keep up with all the new technologies on board the ship and understanding what's going on on board. The Zumwalt has already suffered two mechanical breakdowns, one in the Panama Canal as it was transiting from the East Coast to its permanent home port in San Diego. This is the first ship of a class. This is the first time it got underway. You're going to have things happen. Maybe so, but right now the Navy owns a $4 billion destroyer that cannot perform as advertised. How did that happen? It's a brand new concept, new technology. Number one, it's going to be expensive because some of the technology is not going to work or it's going to take longer to develop. Now, this program was started in the early 1990s. Ron O'Rourke has tracked the Zumwalt for the Congressional Research Service. Originally, as many as 32 of these ships were planned, but that number was cut back in subsequent years. And what are they planning to build now? Uh, the program was eventually truncated at only three ships. 32 down to three. That's right. And what happens if you only build a small number is the price just goes through the roof. Everything about the Zumwalt is controversial. Its cost, its look, even its name. Because Dad was so controversial in what he had done, we knew that there were many uh, people in the Navy that did not want the name Zumwalt attached to a Navy ship. Anne on the right and Musetta on the left are the daughters of the late Admiral Elmo Bud Zumwalt, Chief of Naval Operations from 1970 to 74. Zumwalt shook up what at the time was a very hidebound service. He was that controversial in terms of integrating the Navy with minorities and women. Zumwalt was famous for messages he sent to the fleet called Zgrams, 
ordering an end to racism and sexism. Those zegrams are on display for the ship's crew to read. If you look at the Zumwalt, you will see all religions, all races represented. It's ironic. The Navy was furthest behind in, in among the services. History has come to recognize Admiral Zumwalt as the leader who transformed the Navy of the 20th century. The USS Zumwalt is easy to recognize, but it will take a while for the Navy to figure out how to use it and for history to know what to think of it. Coming up, dogs on a mission. And now a page from our Sunday morning almanac, January 29, 1929, 88 years ago today. The day the organization known as the Seeing Eye was incorporated in Nashville. Co-founder Morris Frank, frustrated by his own blindness, was just back from Switzerland where he'd taken part in a pioneering guide dog program. As I put my hand down on Buddy, I knew that she was going to be my declaration of independence and give me back the freedom that I so long desired. Many years later, Morris Frank was still singing the praises of Buddy, his first seeing eye. She also would be the pioneer of the guide dog movement in the United States for the blind men and women who neither wanted charity nor pity. And what a pioneer Buddy was. Her partnership with Morris Frank captured the attention of the American public. A decade later, her successor, Buddy Two, was guiding Frank through the grounds of the 1939 New York World's Fair. With exclusive rights to the trademark Seeing Eye, the organization Morris Frank helped found has matched more than 16,000 dogs with loving partners over the years. Now headquartered in Morristown, New Jersey, the Seeing Eye says it serves an average of 260 people a year. Training lasts 25 days, and almost all the costs are paid for by charitable contributions. The pups live a normal, noisy life with their mothers and their siblings. We visited the Seeing Eye's puppy farm way back in 1983. Today, some 500 puppies are born into the group's breeding program every year. Now say hello to Phoenix, a guide dog. He's a Labrador retriever who meets his new partner this week. We're told that three quarters of the dogs who begin their training successfully complete it. They work an average of eight years before they get to enjoy a well-earned retirement. Good luck, Phoenix. Before you ever lay your eyes on that spot which says, you are here, a map maker has to get there first. Ideally, a map maker with an artist's touch, like the man our Serena Altschul has been watching at work. Artist James Nehus might not be a household name, but his work is held in the hands of millions of people every year. Do you see yourself as a map maker or, <laughs> or a landscape artist? 
First and foremost, it's a map. Then I really think it's the artist coming in. I really want to produce a beautiful piece. If you ski or snowboard, you've probably relied on Nihuz's work to help you get down a slope or two. I've done uh, maps for 194 different resorts. Nee Hughes is the most sought-out ski map maker in the country. For the last 30 years, he's created maps for big-name resorts, from Killington in Vermont to Vail in Colorado, and a heap of others. You open up something that's pretty to look at, and, and it's been a good map for you you'll remember good experiences. Based about an hour north of Denver, Nehu's works out of his home studio. This is an area here that... His process is fairly simple. So I'd pull that out, print it. Using aerial shots, he creates a sketch. You can see the ridge there that'll come down. He then projects that onto his easel and begins painting. Are people always surprised to learn that you hand paint these? Yes, they are. (laughs) I couldn't believe it. I mean, it's when you could use a computer. No, I can't use a computer. You couldn't. You couldn't. (laughs) No, I wouldn't get the same look. This is water-soluble paint, so you don't want to get your hand on it. In fact, I use a glove here, and this will keep the... The one-fingered glove. The moistures. Yeah, yeah, there you go. This one will work. Each of these trees is just a hand brush stroke. It gives the illusion that there are individual trees. His latest project, Breckenridge Resort in Colorado, is one monster of a mountain made up of five peaks, 187 trails, and 34 lifts. Whether you're a skier or a map maker, this one is no bunny trail. This is a beautiful and, uh, map. So you can just see how vast it is. I knew that I could show that and get it all in one view. So when you see people holding this map in line, waiting for the lift, you have a little pang of pride. Oh, I, I, yeah. It is nice to produce art that is useful. Useful in getting skiers, including Nihus, down the mountain. Whenever I started these maps, I didn't ski hardly at all. We won't tell anyone. It's a secret, Jim. But I'm an intermediate skier now. Uh, So so, you've become a good skier because of these maps. That's right. You had to. I had to ski them. (laughs) At age 72, Nehus doesn't plan to put down his paintbrushes. Drawing a little bit. His soft spot for the slopes hasn't melted away just yet. It seems like you have a job you love. Absolutely. You know, I love doing everything that I do. I know that I have probably the best job in the world. Still to come... I think I am the Texan art. We catch up with actor Dennis Quaid. I keep coming back here. You're funny, man. But first... Why say that? Moonlight. It's more than just a movie. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
Pick one. Moonlight is a coming-of-age movie that's come in for a lot of critical acclaim, not to mention a bundle of Oscar nominations. So, will they call out its name after they ask for the envelope, please? Here's Nancy Giles. A timid boy named Chiron is having a tough time growing up in Liberty City, one of Miami's poorest neighborhoods. You're funny, man. Why do you say that? Just is, that's all. The other kids taunt Chiron because he's different. You ever see the way he walk? You watch his damn mouth. You gonna tell him why the other boys kick his ass all the time? His single mom is a crack addict. His surrogate parents? the local drug dealer, and his girlfriend. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you want. Moonlight is one of the season's most talked-about films. It won the Golden Globe for Best Picture Drama and was just nominated for eight Academy Awards, including Best Picture. Not bad for an independent film made in just 25 days for less than $5 million. Have people noticed, by the way, that there are no white characters in the movie? People have noticed, yeah. In addition to Best Picture, Barry Jenkins has two more Oscar nods for Moonlight, Best Director and Best Adapted Screenplay. You know, it wasn't a conscious decision, but, you know, I didn't know any white people who weren't teachers until I was like a freshman in college. Uh -huh. And I walked in and my roommate was white, you know? I didn't have any white friends. There were just no white people there around. Mm -hmm. uh, and we tried to have fidelity to the world the characters live in. Jenkins and playwright Terrell Alvin McCraney both grew up in Liberty City. They know the neighborhood where the film takes place. This is the elementary school that Barry and I went to at different points and times of our lives. Right. Um, Holmes Elementary. McCraney wrote the original script on which Barry Jenkins based Moonlight. They lived a few blocks from each other, but didn't actually meet until they began work on the movie. While McCraney is gay and Jenkins is straight, they say they've put a lot of themselves into the story. Don't you get up, bro? It happened in that space, and it was probably one of its most terrifying moments for me because it was always, you just never knew um, what was going to happen. So lunchtime could be a really terrifying time for you. Yeah, lunchtime was never a time for eating. McCraney, who's a MacArthur Genius Grant recipient, and Jenkins, share something terrible in common. Both of their mothers were crack users, and both women became HIV positive as a result. I do know that there was a deep pain that she was trying to hide, mm -hmm. that she was trying to alleviate. You gonna keep selling me rocks? British actress Naomi Harris has portrayed a sea goddess in Pirates of the Caribbean and Winnie Mandela, among other roles. To play Chiron's mom, for which she's gotten a Best Supporting Actress nomination, Harris watched YouTube interviews with crack users and met with a woman who struggled with addiction. I couldn't understand this concept. Like, we know how destructive drugs are. I said, how does somebody get attracted to that, you know? And, and she has a son, and so I had so much judgment, actually, and I really had to work very hard to overcome that judgment. 
what you do as an actor is you're inhabiting souls right. and you're asking those souls to come into your space and you can only do that in a non-judgmental way. That's true. I need some money. For what? That's my business. Chiron is actually portrayed at three ages by three different actors. But to play little Chiron, 12-year-old Alex Hibbert didn't do the preparation that the other more experienced performers did. How did you do it? I don't know. I don't know. I just went with what they told me to do. Then I just got into the character that they told me to be and just went on from there. Hibbert is also from Miami, near Liberty City. I hate her. He'd acted in school plays, mm. but never in a movie. I hated my mom, too. Alex is the best scene partner that I've ever had. I right? say that sincerely. He's so wise for his age. Um, he was such a professional, but he was also a kid. You may know Mahershala Ali from the TV series House of Cards. He's also in the new movie Hidden Figures. In Moonlight, he's the Hibbert character's father figure. What I learned in working with him was to try to do less and, and, and work to not act. And that's an important reminder for someone like myself, who's been very fortunate to be working for a couple of decades now. How does that make you feel? Amazing, because same to him. Uh, Ali, who's up for an Oscar for his performance, uh, shares two memorable scenes with Hibbert in the movie. One in which Chiron learns to swim. Relax. I got you, I promise. I'm not gonna let you go. Hey, man, I got you. What's happening is Alex Hibbert, our non-actor, actually does not know how to swim. Oh, and what? Mahershala is actually teaching him how to swim as the storm is coming in off the coast. And there's another scene in which Chiron learns who he is. What's a faggot? A faggot is... a word used to make gay people feel bad. When you typed the word faggot for the first time and you saw it on the page, what did you think? Bomb. <laughs> I thought really? it was a bomb. Really? Yeah, it was, uh, it was scary. Am I a faggot? No. No. You could be gay, but you gotta let nobody call you no faggot. At first, I was watching to see if my mom was there because my mom is very strict and she doesn't like me saying words. <laughs> How do I know? Just do. It felt sacred that day. It really did. Sacred? It did. I felt like we made a little bit of magic that day. Yeah, man. Moonlight is far from a blockbuster. It's made just $16 million so far. But it's eight Oscar nods and critical acclaim may help the movie reach a larger audience. It's an opportunity for us to learn about people who haven't had an opportunity to speak for themselves. And I think it's really important to remind, reinforce people that their lives have value, you know, that their lives have worth. It bypasses the mind and it speaks straight to your heart. Mm -hmm. and, and also it shows just how, like, we all, on some level, are damaged, you know, and we are all coming from this wounded place in our search for connection and love. And I think just seeing that really helps, helps people understand their journey and helps people understand each other. And I think now more than ever, we need that reminder.
How are your friends reacting to all of this? Um, they're all like, Alex, so you're a big movie star now. Slide me some change. <laughs> and, and, and <laughs> what do you do when they say slide me some change? Um, I'll be all like, I got you, but. <laughs> what a good <laughs> you are. That's fabulous. David Edelstein on the passing of Mary Tyler Moore. Next. Many of us are still mourning the death of actress Mary Tyler Moore at the age of 80. We have an appreciation now from our critic, David Edelstein. Who can turn the world on with her smile? Since Wednesday, when Mary Tyler Moore died at age 80 from the ramifications of type 1 diabetes, her signature song, has been everywhere. And everyone's been thinking that the smile that turned the world on is no more. And maybe that all our frowns combined have turned it off. The Dick Van Dyke Show. To smile again, all you need is to see her in The Dick Van Dyke Show, where she's fresh as a daisy. Rob! Okay, I give up. Why have you emptied our room? So you and I can dance. <laughs> The partnership is gorgeous. Dick Van Dyke's floppy, happy-go-lucky style anchored by Moore's ever-so-slight brittleness, that jumpy, feline quality that made her look so right in those catsuit-like capri pants. But it was, of course, the Mary Tyler Moore Show, which ran from 1970 to 1977, that made her a pop culture icon. And many people have called her character Mary Richards an inspiration an independent, assertive woman in an office full of men. You mean that, w that what I just did wasn't rotten? Oh, no, no, that was rotten, all right. <laughs> it's just nice to know that everyone's rotten. <laughs> but it wasn't that simple. She was only assertive after a protracted and very funny internal battle. You see her thinking, is it nice? Is it feminine to challenge the male status quo. Will Mr. Grant blow up at her? That march into his office to speak up for herself is plainly terrifying. Look, I I'm, I'm going to try not to. Uh... I, was, I was just sitting at my desk, and uh... I don't know how I, I, I could work here for... <laughs> Mary's dithering might seem retro today, but 47 years ago, it was perfect for the mainstream network audience. Much easier to like than, say, B. Arthur's brassy feminist Maud, who came along in 1972. You know, Arthur, since you're a doctor, they should name a rash after you. <laughs> in later years, Moore spoke of the difficulty of growing up with alcoholic parents. What I know from women who grew up in similar circumstances is that they learn to be accommodating, to put a smiley face on their feelings so as not to set off dad or mom. I think that's why Mary Richards feels authentic. Her tremulous persona isn't just a shtick. It's rooted in something real. What's wrong? Why don't you ask him what's wrong? Three years after the Mary Tyler Moore show went off the air, Robert Redford gave Moore permission in the film Ordinary People to turn off her smile, to be the icy, non-empathetic, over-defended person Moore suspected she really was. 
Poor Beth. She has no idea what her son is up to. He lies and she believes every word of it. I didn't lie. You did. You lied every time you came into this house at 6.30. It must have been terribly challenging and also terribly liberating and subversive. Moore's big movie career never happened. As she aged, it got harder to recycle the Mary Richards persona. And when she tried to go against that image in TV movies like, like Mother, Like Son, a.k.a. Mary Richards murders Edith Bunker, she often went over the top. Do you have any idea what these past years have meant? I spent them in prison for you. There was one glorious exception. David O. Russell's 1996 psycho farce, Flirting with Disaster, in which he plays a wildly selfish rhymes with rich and uses all her comic smarts. What did I just tell you about the U-turns? He was in my blind spot. You could fit the state of Wisconsin in your blind spot. We'll always go back, though, to those twin peaks of situation comedy, where Mary Tyler Moore turned her own neuroses into hilarious ballets of despair and self-discovery that will never, ever lose their luster. Next stop... It's the mecca of modernism. Desert Chic in Palm Springs. For all those longing for a journey to yesteryear, a desert oasis beckons. And thanks to Margaret Brennan, we'll be traveling in style. Driving in Palm Springs is like going back in time. From the architecture to the classic cars, this city has an old school vibe. Many of the homes were built in the middle of the 20th century, or patterned after that so-called mid-century modern aesthetic. Flat plains, open floor plans, and giant walls of glass that bring the outside in. Even the commercial buildings in downtown Palm Springs have that glow of an earlier era. The Chase Bank, City Hall, and the local Catholic Church. It's the Mecca of modernism, absolutely. The Mecca of modernism, you're looking at it, you're standing in it. Architecture guide Robert Ember has dedicated his adult life to helping Palm Springs celebrate its mid-century chic. So think Mad Men? Think Mad Men, absolutely. That whole country club scene, the whole Mad Men scene, the hair, the cigarettes, the, the glass ashtrays, the glass tables, the hanging lamp, all that swag was all mid-century. After World War II ended, a newly wealthy middle class began settling in this desert oasis and enlisted a number of modernist architects who had become stars of the genre. Richard Neutra, Albert Fry, William Cody. But it wasn't just cool homes and 85-degree weather that made this city a sexy destination back in the day. What gave Palm Springs its cool cachet were the Hollywood celebrities who flocked here in the 50s and 60s. With the movie studios just 100 miles away, stars like Cary Grant, Bob Hope, and Bing Crosby built homes here in the movie colony. Their neighbor, perhaps the most famous of them all, lived within these giant hedges. 
the leader of the Rat Pack, Frank Sinatra. It's known as the Twin Palms Estate for the trees that tower above the pool. Sinatra lived here for a decade, during his first marriage to Nancy Barbado and his second to Ava Gardner. Architect E. Stuart Williams convinced Sinatra to build it in the modern style of the day. He designed the pool in the shape of a grand piano. And when the sun hits the openings in the veranda at the right angle, the shadows form piano keys on the pool sidewalk. He built this when he was just in his 30s, right? Absolutely, mid-30s, and for a, a young guy to, uh, to enter into such a venture back then was huge. David Monahan is the director of guest services at the estate, which can now be rented out for a cool $2,500 per night. It is no surprise that the home was designed for entertaining. Cocktails flowed as the music wafted across the pool. This looks like a pretty serious stereo. What is this exactly? This is the piece of all pieces. This is a, an original Valentino piece that uh, Capitol Records presented to uh, Sinatra back in the day. And it said that he could record onto vinyl and also transmit back to the uh, studios in Hollywood. Ever the ladies' man, Sinatra enjoyed a master suite that occupied a wing of the house. He was known to have a few companions. <laughs> a few, in the bedroom. That's very delicate, Margaret, a few <laughs> companions. This is where the magic happened. <laughs> and if the walls could talk, Margaret, <laughs> we'd be deafened, I'm quite sure, right now. But uh, yes, he had a few companions. Um, I think the last social tabloids explosion uh, was about Ava Gardner. Um, he was uh, supposedly seeing and having an affair with Lorna Turner. His affairs reportedly led to an epic fight with Gardner, who managed to duck a flying champagne bottle tossed at her by Sinatra. The damage is still evident. So a, a bottle itself cracked this in three places here. And for an original sink to hold up that many years, well, it can only be show business. <laughs> Thanks to the cool factor, Palm Springs has undergone a renaissance in recent years. Over 70,000 people attended last year's annual Modernism Week. The young and hip now regularly descend on the city's boutique hotels. So that excitement, that fun, that partying, all of that stuff that is the Rat Pack and was Hollywood in those exuberant years was happening here and now quite revered here. And so we live in houses here that maintain that and respect that and relive it. Next. If I had to sweep floors and clean trash just to be around them, then I did that. Yeah. Steve Hartman on a dream come true. That is awesome. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Who says you can't make a lifetime dream come true? Not the man our Steve Hartman found toiling down at the ice rink. It is one of the least glamorous jobs in the National Hockey League. Showing up before the players washing away yesterday's dirt and grime, picking up after those too talented to bother for themselves. And yet, Carolina Hurricanes equipment manager George Alves says there is nowhere else he'd rather be. If I had to sweep floors and clean trash and, you know, just to, just to be around them, then I did that. Yeah. 
As a kid growing up outside Boston, George dreamed of being a goalie in the NHL. But he was the child of janitors, and goalie equipment was expensive. I knew my parents couldn't afford it either, so came across a, a tennis racket, which happened to be my goalie stick, and National Geographic's strapped to my legs. Strapped to your legs for yeah. pads. And, and that's, that's how it started. He eventually got on his high school team, and after a stint in the Marines, tried to make it in the minors. Repeatedly. Seems like every picture you're in a different uniform. Yeah, <laughs> it's what I had to do. He stopped chasing the dream only after he started chasing kids. Well, what you got? What you got? <laughs> Once Madison and Jackson were born, George knew he needed a real job. And he's been equipment manager ever since. Sorry for the distraction, boys. Until recently. Last month, just a few hours before a game, Carolina's backup goalie got sick. Now, normally that's not a problem. You just bring someone up from the minors. But this was so close to game time. The Hurricanes had no choice. So I called my wife. She's like, hey, what's going on? I'm like, yeah, I'm just getting ready for the game. And, and, uh, and I'm dressing tonight. <laughs> she sounded so happy for me and everything. Moments later, the guy responsible for cleaning everyone else's dirty uniforms had a bright new one of his own with his name on the back. Of course, George sat the whole game, until the very end. I thought the game was over. I, I got up, started heading back towards the locker room, and I heard George. This is one of the coolest things I've ever seen. Turns out there were seven seconds left. That is awesome. Carolina was down by two, so it didn't really matter for the score, and those seven seconds passed unremarkably. But for George Alves, he can now say he played in the NHL working hard and staying committed to something, it can really make your dream come true. He may not be a pro athlete, but he is exactly what kids should aspire to be. Still to come, we're all charged up. I'm just going to be Mike. But first... 20-year-old Mike. Actor Dennis Quaid. Moves the cutters up from fifth into fourth position and appears to be moving well enough to even make a serious challenge for third position. Who was the best pilot you ever saw? Who was the best pilot I ever saw? Yeah. Well, uh, you're looking at him. <laughs> it's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Jane Pauley. Dennis Quaid played the brash Mercury astronaut Gordon Cooper in the 1983 film The Right Stuff. Now he's starring in a new movie some animal rights activists are saying is the wrong stuff. Tracy Smith questions him about that and much more for our Sunday profile. Hey, 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 uh, uh. It's me, boss dog! <laughs> you might say that Dennis Quaid has been a bit overwhelmed lately. You want to get out of here? He's made more than 70 movies, but few have caused an uproar like this one. Okay, buddy. Yes, it's going to be you and me. A Dog's Purpose is about the good dogs do for mankind. But all that sentiment took a back seat 10 days ago when a tape surfaced showing what looks like a dog being forced to do a pool stunt during filming. 
So let's talk about this video that's been in the news first. Have you had a chance to see the video? I was really shocked, to tell you the truth, when I first saw it. And uh, um, I didn't like what I saw. But I, um, I do know my own experience when I was on the set, how much care was paid to each and every dog or every other animal. Okay. Quaid, who's a dog owner in real life, wasn't in the water scene and had nothing to do with that part of the production. All right. So for people who are saying boycott the film, what would you say? Well, I, I don't really think that's, I don't think it's fair, to tell you the truth. And I would never be on a set where dogs were mistreated or abused. And that's what, uh, I mean, already get, I'm getting a little fickle up talking about it. Why because it that? hits me. I, dogs hit us in a certain place. You sleep with your dog, you watch TV with them, you, you take them out in the car. And uh, dogs, I think what they do for us too is they, they remind us of just the wonderful feeling of being alive. Simple as that. This is actually the beginning of the hill country. At 62, the man who spent half of his life in Hollywood still keeps a place in Austin, Texas. So are you a Texan at heart? Yeah, I think I am a Texan. Hello, Austin! He's also a rock star at heart. On weekend nights, like this past Friday, he plays local clubs with his band, Dennis Quaid and the Sharks. You're playing in your band tonight. Is that a hobby or is it a need? You know, do you need music? It's more of a need. Don't see it, don't matter what you do, but you don't even know. He's not bad with a guitar, but acting has always paid the bills. Talk. Dennis Quaid has created some of the most memorable characters on film, from the charmingly crooked cop in The Big Easy. I saw you take that bribe and, and, and resist arrest and tamper with evidence and perjure yourself under oath. Don't forget I ran a red light, too. To a rail-thin Doc Holliday in Wyatt Earp. Do you believe in friendship, Wyatt Earp? So do I. Born and raised in Houston, Dennis Quaid thought about becoming a veterinarian, but acting was always in his blood. My dad was a, a, a frustrated actor, and my dad really introduced my brother and I both to acting through the movies. Big Brother Randy got off to a fast start, making his debut in 1971's The Last Picture Show and earning an Oscar nomination for his work in 1973's The Last Detail. But Dennis had a few years of failed auditions before he finally found work. A lot of the guys that you started out with have fallen off the radar, and you have endured. Why do you think that is? I have a lot of tenacity. That's what it is. And then uh, I have an overwhelming uh, capacity for uh, rejection and failure. <laughs> Fear of failure is a great motivator. And uh, yeah, it keeps you going. They're going to keep calling us cutters. By 1979, he found his footing in films like Breaking Away. Them is just a dirty word. Me is just something else I never got a chance to be. You going to take that off him? 
I've seen what you've done. You may be family and everything, but I ain't siding with you. And the next year, the Quaid brothers even worked together. Do you have favorite movies? Sure. I guess my favorite film for me was The Right Stuff. And who are you? Me? I'm an, I'm an astronaut. Just because I, I judge my movies not necessarily by how much money they did or, or even how good they were uh, or turned out, but how uh, the experience I had when I was making them. And, but the right stuff had everything. It was, it's a great film. Uh, Gordo. He played his boyhood hero, astronaut Gordon Gordo Cooper. I love the name Gordo. If they ever make a movie about this, man, I want to play Gordo so bad. The sun is coming through the window now. Oh, Lord, what a heavenly light. And it was like one of those times in life where, you know, somebody wants so bad and it actually happens. Lydia, oh, Lydia I, I stubbed my toe on the cab when I kicked the door. I, I think it's broken. Well, better your toe than your heart. Quaid met his second wife, Meg Ryan, on the set of 1987's Inner Space. He was working hard and partying harder. The cocaine days were fun. Yeah, because the cocaine business, it's like it's fun, that it's fun with problems, and that it's just problems. So I had gotten to the problem stage. For you, how bad did it get? Uh, I was doing like two grams a day. You know, it was enough, and I was, I was getting like an hour's sleep a night, and... That's not a lot of sleep. Not a lot. You were with Meg Ryan at the time. How much did she help you to you know, kick that fantastic. addiction? She was fantastic. She was so supportive. And uh, in fact, she didn't even know that, that uh, I was uh, addicted at the time. How'd you hide it from her? Well, addicts are really good at hiding things. Since then, he's been a clean and reliable box office star who's been known to stir up Oscar talk now and again. Was that kind of annoying? There's all this Oscar buzz and then... I, I really don't. I can't pay attention to it. Sure, it's nice to win awards and all that. Sure, it's nice to, that people recognize what you do or whatever. That's nice. But it's not the be-all to end-all. So says the guy who doesn't have an Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> Oscar or not, he's the first to admit how lucky he's been. In 2007, Quaid and Kimberly Buffington nearly lost their newborn twins when hospital staff gave them an overdose of blood thinners. Miraculously, the babies survived. They must seem all the more precious now. Well, uh, you appreciate life when you go through something like that. Thank God we had a happy ending. Is, that's really what I say. Thank God we had a happy ending. The twins, Thomas and Zoe, were at a family party in Austin last night to honor their grandmother, Juanita, on her 90th birthday. You look incredible. Quaid calls her his rock and says she taught him to get through the dark times by keeping his eyes on the light ahead. Are you optimistic? Yeah. Yeah, I am. Naturally, I am. (laughs) You know, they've had my moments, but... You know, naturally, I think I've been kind of optimistic. I, 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 I think better things are always going to come. And they usually do. If you hang around long enough. <laughs> <laughs> Ahead, 
parallel lives. Many young women in the 1970s saw themselves in the TV character played by Mary Tyler Moore. Among them, our Rita Braver. Of course, we all loved Mary Tyler Moore, but I was her alter ego, Mary Richards, the first girl, and yes, they called me girl producer, in my local newsroom. It wasn't Minneapolis, like Mary, but New Orleans, WWL-TV. I was 23 years old, a year out of college, and the news director who interviewed me had the same response that Lou Grant did. I figured I'd hire a man for it. Oh. <laughs> we can talk about it. In fact, Phil Johnson, less gruff, but just as kind-hearted as Lou Grant, ultimately told me that I got hired because they couldn't find a guy to take it for the money they were paying. The job pays $10 less a week than the secretarial job. $72 a week, to be exact. $56 take home. Even in 1971, that was a pittance. But women my age still remember a time when bosses would openly pay women less than men. It was called getting your foot in the door. If you can uh, get by on 15 less a week, we'll make you a producer. <laughs> no, no, I think all I can afford is associate producer. <laughs> Still, like Mary Richards, I loved my job, making decisions about what would get on their news broadcasts, reading reporters' copy, and having them sometimes actually take my suggestions. And then, of course, having them ask me to gift wrap their wives' anniversary presents. But here's the thing. The Mary Tyler Moore Show really helped women in newsrooms. Seeing her on TV made them realize we were here to stay. Yes, they would ask me to go charm the grouchy old guy in graphics, but they'd also take me on dangerous assignments, like going into New Orleans Parish Prison. When I would argue for more Vietnam War coverage in lieu of a lighter feature, I'd often win. And I honestly believe that the character of Mary Richards helped demonstrate that you could be a team player, get ahead, and not have to become one of the boys. It was a proud moment when I left to join CBS, and my boss told me he wanted to hire more women. He didn't say girls. Something electrifying next. Many experts in electricity are truly juiced these days. They're pursuing the search for the super battery. The title of this Wednesday night's episode of Nova on PBS, hosted by our own David Pogue of Yahoo Tech. We have a preview. You probably grew up thinking that batteries are those things we put in flashlights. Or maybe the rechargeable ones that come in cell phones and laptops. But lately, batteries have been popping up in much bigger gadgets, like electric cars. And now it's time to install batteries into the biggest machine of all, the United States electrical grid. That huge, aging, complex network of power plants and wires that bring electricity to our homes and buildings. And why would our national power system need batteries? 
two gigantic reasons. We don't have a shortage of electricity. We have a shortage of electricity at certain times, and we have an abundance of it at other times. Mike Hopkins is an expert on the national power storage problem and CEO of a company that hopes to solve it. I'm sure you know the electricity system has huge surpluses in it at nighttime, actually, (laughs) that have to be literally wasted, that has terrible deficits at other times of day, peak hours, which results, how do you know that? Blackouts, that's how you know it. That's the first reason we need batteries on the electrical grid, to even out the supply and demand, to time shift the availability of power from nighttime to daytime. But reason number two is even more important to our future. Power plant batteries would eliminate the biggest problem with solar power and wind power. They're both intermittent. Clouds come over on a sunny day and all of a sudden it's gone. Wind stops blowing, all of a sudden it's gone. You need a way to store it. Some have proposed using huge banks of regular rechargeable batteries, like the ones in our cell phones. But that's massively expensive, and their lifespan is far too short. Which is why some companies have begun creating batteries that don't look like batteries. Here in Bath County, Virginia, they've set up a dam and two reservoirs. During the day, when people need power, the water flows downhill, spinning turbines and generating electricity. Then at night, when power is cheap, they pump the water back uphill. They call this system pumped hydro. Unfortunately, pumped hydro works only in a few places where they have those upper and lower reservoirs. But American inventors aren't finished yet, which brings us back to Mike Hopkins. Word is that your new battery is environmentally perfect can be recharged and recharged infinitely, unlike a regular battery, and is way cheaper than lithium ion. And I can show it to you right now if you want me to. Yes, please. Here's the big reveal. The new battery technology is, it's a block of ice. A beautiful block of ice. (laughs) Hopkins' company is called Ice Energy. He invited me to a winery in Temecula, California, to show me his product, the Ice Bear. It's basically a huge bathtub that freezes water solid overnight when energy is very cheap. So far, what you've described is basically a big ice tray. How does that help anybody? Well, the way it works is that during the heat of the day, after this is ice, you get to the heat of the day, and this device is connected to that device, which is just a common conventional rooftop air conditioner. That air conditioner doesn't have to create cooling, it's getting ice-cold refrigerant from the melting ice over in this device, using only 5% of the electricity in total that would have been required if you just were having to run that electricity-consuming device during the heat of the day. In other words, these 10 ice batteries can replace the winery's air conditioners for six hours a day. As a result, the winery saves electricity and lowers greenhouse gases by 20 tons a year. That's an important step in fighting climate change. Now, thawing ice isn't the only force of nature that can store grid energy. So let's take a look, spin the wheel, and each of the points along the tire and the rim is in motion, and voila, we have energy storage. Seth Sanders is the co-founder of Amber Kinetics near San Francisco. And this bike is supposed to illustrate how their grid batteries work. So here comes the sun. Okay, I'm shining on your, your solar panels. I'm charging up the flywheel, that I get, right? 
So now the sun goes down. How do I get this stored energy back into the grid? An electric machine functions as a motor and equally well as a generator. In other words, Amber Kinetics uses cheap electricity at night to spin up enormous flywheels. Then, during the day, a generator captures that momentum. As the flywheel slows down, the generator creates electricity. Oh, and these wheels aren't exactly bike wheels. How much do these babies weigh? This is about a 5,000-pound part. Wow, and how fast is it going to be spinning? It's some good number of thousands of RPM. That's up to 8,000 rotations a minute. But the coolest part is how they keep friction from slowing down that big steel wheel. First, a huge magnet levitates that 5,000-pound wheel so that it's just barely resting on its bearings. Second, they seal the flywheel into this vacuum chamber, so there's no air friction either. Each flywheel can store four hours' worth of electricity. The result? A battery that never loses charging capacity, can't catch fire, and lasts for decades. All over the world, the quest is on to invent storage for our electrical network. Something cheap, that stores a lot, and lasts for decades. It might be gravity, or ice, or spinning disks, or some other idea, or maybe all of the above. But once we have them, we can reduce blackouts, cut down on pollution, capture the power of the wind, and let solar power really start to shine. I'm Jane Pauley. Please join us here again next Sunday morning. If you like CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Pauley, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.